Good morning, everybody. This is another edition of the Passball Show, brought to you by JohnPielli.com, as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Glad to be with you on, I guess today is Tuesday, the 27th of November, 2018. We're going to go at it for about, I don't know, maybe about 20, 30 minutes, a little bit of a filibuster today as we get into stuff going on in the world of baseball sports and unifying America. And coincidentally, I don't have any topics off the top of my head to talk about in regards to baseball. But I want to remind everybody, if you're interested, want to be part of the show, you can give the show a call. The number is 732-364-3598. You could also comment on Facebook Live or Periscope as we get everything up and I can follow your comments over the course of the show today. Good weekend, you know, in the NFL, obviously you had the Ohio State-Michigan game and college football was really stood out. Um, really interesting how prepared Ohio State seemed to be. And it was almost like they were a different team when they were playing Ohio State as opposed to the way they were in other games over the course of the season. This was a team that, yes, they only lost one time and were in the mix technically for a BCS bid and a potential run or opportunity to play for the national championship or at least be one of the final four teams to have the opportunity to do so. But it, it didn't seem like this team was on the level of even a Michigan, let alone Alabama or Clemson or Notre Dame. And they played Michigan as if that was their championship game. They played Michigan as if they were playing that game for the national championship and it meant the world to them and everything that they were going up against was just about beating Michigan and it didn't matter who else they were playing. So a tremendous, tremendous effort and game plan. You give Urban Meyer credit. You know, whether you like Urban Meyer or hate Urban Meyer, he had that team ready. And you could say on a converse side that Jim Harbaugh was not prepared. He was not ready. And he didn't make the necessary adjustments because I think that's something that you need to do in any sort of football. And you look at, obviously, college football, the way it's set up, that game meaning so much. And, in fact, you thought it was the conference championship game because it seemed like those were the two best teams. And in the end, Ohio State is playing Northwestern. Michigan season's over. And you can have a deep conversation if you want about Jim Harbaugh's future as the coach of Michigan. He's done a lot in his four years there. They've won 10, 10 games, three to four seasons. They've had a winning record every year. But the one thing that stands out, and if you understand Michigan-Ohio State, the thing that is more important than winning a national championship, and it's almost going to sound asinine to say, but it's the truth. More important than winning the national championship is for Michigan to beat Ohio State. More important than to win the national championship is to beat Michigan if you're Ohio State. And that's the way that both of these teams, you know, embrace their rivalry. Going back to the days of Woody Hayes and, you know, Bo Schimbeckler, who came off the Woody Hayes Ohio State coaching staff and all the years since. The rivalries in college football, if you think of probably the biggest rivalry in all professional sports that doesn't get discussed that much, that's Army-Navy. And you can say, hey, Army-Navy, how many NFL players can you name off the top of your head that came out of the Naval Academy or Army? And there's some you can name, but you don't think of Army and Navy being the two best teams in college football. Years ago, it was a little different. Both teams have had some runs as far as being top teams, but the biggest rivalry in college football is Army-Navy. Those teams could care less whether they win another game the rest of the year. 
they want to beat the other team. And the same thing exists with Michigan-Ohio State. The same thing exists with a lot of other rivalries in college sports. And it's just amazing how Ohio State had a completely different game plan. And it was almost like they didn't have certain plays and things set up for them to use. It's almost like they put them in reserve and used them. And they had a great game plan against Michigan. Michigan did a bad job of not adjusting. And he almost felt bad for the cornerback, number 28, Watson, who just seemed to be involved in every bad play. Every time there was a bad play, every time there was a penalty, you know, it was the ball being thrown to number 28. It's almost as if he was being targeted. And that comes from weeks upon weeks of game plans and studies. And Urban Meyer in Ohio State, similar to Jim Harbaugh in Michigan. I'm not going to tell you that Jim Harbaugh and the Michigan Wolverines did not prepare and haven't been preparing all season for Ohio State because that is ridiculously important. And anybody who didn't identify that or wouldn't identify that would certainly not be in touch with the intensity of the rivalry of Michigan and Ohio State. So I'm not accusing of Jim Harbaugh of not preparing all season for Ohio State. I'm sure they were. But you could tell that Urban Meyer and Ohio State just cared more about beating Michigan than they did for anything else. They couldn't have, they could be winless, but would have had a game plan set to beat Michigan State, even if Michigan was undefeated. Michigan has the top defense or had the top defense in all of college football. And it was almost like they they were a JV team. And so great job by Ohio State. Certainly great game plan by Urban Meyer, but that's not even what I wanted to talk about today. But once again, this is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com. Anything on your mind in a world of baseball sports and unifying America. So, you know, I was thinking about the Cleveland-Cincinnati game because, the, you know, yesterday, or uh, what was it, Sunday, you're following a game and Cleveland comes up pretty similar and not maybe, maybe no relation to Ohio State. Obviously, both play football in the same state. Maybe Ohio State's a little more popular than the Cleveland Browns, but the Cleveland Browns have a very good game plan against the Cincinnati Bengals and go out there and they stick it to them. And what takes away from the solid victory that the Cleveland Browns had, and you could say that the Browns maybe have arrived. This is a team that I think everybody's going to start to jump on the bandwagon when it comes to next year and when it comes to that, right, that quote-unquote sleeper team that people jump in and say, oh, man, look at them this year. They're always going to, they're going to be good. Look at the Buffalo Bills a couple of years ago. How far did that get them? Look at the Jacksonville Jaguars. The Houston Texans are having a good year this year. But the last couple of years, people are like, hey, that's a good sleeper team. And, you know, the Oakland Raiders, who always would be a good sleeper team pick, have not fulfilled said ob obligations. So people are going to get onto that boat. They're going to get onto that bandwagon. They're going to talk about the Cleveland Browns next year. And, of course, they're going to make some moves. They probably got their quarterback in the future in Baker Mayfield. And I thought it was a very childish move or a very unprofessional type of move made by Baker Mayfield and his decision to not his decision to not shake hands with Coach Hugh Jackson at the end of the game the other day. I thought it was a terrible job. I thought even if he felt the way that he, that he did, even if, even if he was that much down on his coach, if he felt that his coach did a lousy job and was not the man for the job or maybe didn't respect him or treat him the way that he deserved to be treated or any of that crap. But 
the, the thing that Baker Mayfield should have done, and maybe it's the fact that he's immature, maybe it's the fact that he's still in his early 20s, that he, he hasn't grown up yet. But sometimes whatever you feel on the inside, you should separate that to the display of what the response of your actions are going to be. And I think it is a bigger deal or was a bigger deal than is probably being made out to by the media. And Hugh Jackson, whether he liked Baker Mayfield, whether Baker Mayfield liked Hugh Jackson, none of that really matters. It's a matter of being professional. And a guy was his football coach over a series of years. And I know the talking heads go to town. Like they got all these ridiculous takes on it. And trust me, I'm guilty of doing it sometimes too. So I'm not going to keep myself out of the, the reach of the wrath when it comes to this. Because I think we all put certain takes on things that happen. And in some cases make them out to be bigger than they really are. Baker Mayfield probably would have no right to be pissed off at Hugh Jackson for coaching the Cincinnati Bengals. And Hugh Jackson, listen, I'm going to stick up for him in this one instance. Uh, you can't stick up for him when it comes to that 1-31 record over two seasons, when it came to a series of games this year where they should have won, and you can make a case that the coach was the difference. So Hugh Jackson, as an NFL head coach, has not proven himself to be uh, passable or respectable in that sort of, uh, of genre. Maybe he's good as an assistant coach. Maybe he could try the college game. I don't know. But as an NFL head coach, he's proven himself not worthy of the job. So he gets fired. And he and you can make the case that he should have been fired earlier. He should have been fired after last season when the Browns went 0-16. He should have been fired at a couple points of the season early on. Maybe even before it got to 0-16 last year. But the bottom line is the Browns made the decision when they did, and Hugh Jackson was terminated from his contract. At that point, he's got the right to do whatever it is that he wants to do. And that same applies to anybody in America that has a job and loses a job. you got to look at it from the fact that this is a person or this is an employer that's paying you. The employer is paying you. Now, in some cases, they could fire you on the spot, and you are no longer entitled to pay. Sometimes you're signed to a contract, and if you're under a contract, you're entitled to said pay up to a certain time, regardless of whether you're still employed. So if that's the case, then maybe Hugh Jackson, if he wanted to, could, could have taken a, the rest of the year off. But he wanted to get back out there. He had the right to go to wherever he wanted to go. He could have gone to the New England Patriots. He could have gone to the Cincinnati Bengals. He could have gone anywhere that was willing to employ him. And anybody that chose to employ him, also has the right to hire him. So that has nothing to do with the fact that Hugh Jackson was just fired from his job. So any if Baker Mayfield or anybody else is critical of Hugh Jackson going to the Bengals, it's not like he left. He didn't leave the Cleveland Browns. He didn't resign. He didn't decide that he want, didn't want to be the coach there anymore. Maybe there was some extenuating circumstances that were involved. Maybe there were some, you know, the rift between him and Todd Haley, the offensive coordinator, that led to both of them getting fired. And you could make a good case that that was probably the reason that that happened. That being said, once somebody is terminated, they got the right to do whatever it is that they want. You know, somebody loses their job and, and for whatever reason, he just wants to go out there and do something different. Okay, go for it. You, know, you, got, the right to, you, you got the right to do any sort of profession that you want. As long as you're not under contract or doing the current job that you're doing. So Baker Mayfield was wrong by not shaking Hugh Jackson's hand, but he was also wrong in being critical 
of Jackson going to the Cincinnati Bengals. The Browns, as an organization, were the ones that decided that they didn't want him. Because of that, he's got the right to go wherever it is that he wants, wants to go. Now, this comparison that was made, which I think was very silly, and I'm not even going to call out the, the talk show host that brought this up because I think he was so off base with it, it's ridiculous, that the Texas Tech-Oklahoma thing with Baker Mayfield. Baker Mayfield did what many college quarterbacks do over the course of their time. They know they only got three, four years, maybe five if they're lucky, if they get a red shirt, to prove themselves if they feel they got the ability to be an NFL quarterback. Or this goes to any college football player or college athlete. If you're going to college for a certain amount of time, you maybe you know you have some talent and your goal is to get to the next level to play pro ball, you know you have a small window to be able to prove yourself at the highest level. And you see it all the time. You look at Tua with Alabama taking over for the quarterback that was there last year. And in many cases, you have quarterbacks that are running Division One schools or running the offenses of Division One schools that after a couple of years, all of a sudden, they're put on the bench with somebody that is young and up and coming and maybe more talented. So if you're in a case of the person that's just getting replaced and you only have a certain amount of time, to prove yourself worthy of being an NFL quarterback if that's what you believe, then the best decision you can make is to transfer and go somewhere else. Go to another school that may give you a scholarship, and even if they don't give you a scholarship, may give you the opportunity to play, may give you the opportunity to be the everyday quarterback. And if that's the case, you get the opportunity to prove yourself. And if you are what you claim to be, then in the end, the numbers are going to show it. You're going to get a job in the NFL. So that comparison of Hugh Jackson to... Baker Mayfield, was completely asinine. This copyright and broadcast is authorized under internet rights granted by the World Wide Web and is solely for the entertainment of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, or other use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of this show without the express written consent of the past ball show, JohnPielli.com and JohnPielli LLC, is prohibited. Any commercial or other use of the program, such as by charging and missing for its showing, is similarly prohibited. So we're in the middle of the hot stove when it comes to Major League Baseball, and hopefully you're going to see more action this offseason than you saw last offseason. And I'll tell you, it, from a person that follows the game, from a person that is into what you call the hot stove as far as teams retooling and setting themselves up for the success of the next season, the one thing that stood out was there were so many teams that weren't trying last offseason, and that it certainly impacted the free agent market. There were many teams that said, hey, we don't need good players because we don't want to be good. And that certainly changed the whole dynamics of the offseason when you had many high-profile players that were sitting there unsigned in January and in February. And right when the season's about to start, they still don't have a job. This year, I think things are off to a little bit of a better start. You see Josh Donaldson signing with the Braves, the Braves signing Brian McCann, bringing him back. It obviously, coming off a season where they won the National League East, they consider themselves a, a team that's in their prime, a team that their window has started as far as looking to turn the corner and win themselves a World Series championship. And you're going to have much discussion. You have the Paxton trade with the New York Yankees. The Seattle Mariners are looking to deal some other players. And it's interesting to see how far the Seattle Mariners decide to go with their rebuild. Obviously, if there's one player they would like to jettison off their roster because of future financial commitments, it would be Robinson Cano. And you could say 
they'd like to jettison Robinson Cano for a couple reasons. The contract, which it was certainly what they needed to sign him to if they were going to get him in the first place. So that's the one part of it that doesn't get respected enough. It doesn't get brought up to a point where you say, hey, the Mariners would not have gotten Robinson Cano if they had not given him a 10-year deal. If the best offer was seven or eight years, he probably would have gone back to the Yankees. He probably would have gone to a, a team that maybe, at least from a historical standpoint, would have more of an opportunity to win. He gets the 10-year offer from the Mariners. He takes it, of course, because the money's there and the commitment is there. And now the Mariners have to deal with what it's like to pay a player that is in the back five years of a 10-year deal. We've seen it with Alex Rodriguez. We're certainly seeing it with Albert Pujols. The one thing that stands out about Robinson Cano, in spite of his performance-enhancing drug suspension last year when he was banned for 80 games, is the fact that he is still performing at a high level. He still hits for a higher than 300 batting average. He still hits for the power. He still plays a respectable defense. I know he played a gold glove defense before at second base, but you know he plays a good enough defense or good enough defense at second base to run out there every day. Is he still a star player? I think he may have another all-star appearance or two left in him. So that makes it interesting when it comes to teams that may be interested in trading for him. If I'm the Seattle Mariners and I'm Jerry Depoto, one thing that I am holding down to all the way to the bottom, saying under no circumstances am I going to concede this thing that I want in my, if I'm trading Robinson Cano. The taking team or the trading team that's going to trade for Robinson Cano is going to take 100% of Robinson Cano's contract. And that might not bode well for a lot of fans. That might not bode well for a lot of organizations in Major League Baseball. You know, you got Yankee fans who are bitching, yeah, we'll take Robinson Cano if the Mariners pay his contract. Well, if that's the case, then the Yankees better give up top-line prospects, a series of them, because they're getting Robinson Cano for free. Now, the one thing that always is frustrating to me, and I've hinted about this and I've had rants about this on the show, is the advantage that general manager Brian Cashman seems to have over all other general managers in Major League Baseball. Now, you could call it being shrewd, you could call it being savvy, you could call it just being better when it comes to the personal relationships he builds with other teams, or just the bullying mentality that he uses to be able to get whatever it is that he wants. Either way, Brian Cashman is able to make trades that other general managers in Major League Baseball are not able to make. He gets Aroldis Chapman for a series of low-level minor leaguers from the Cincinnati Reds. He trades for Starling Castro with the Chicago Cubs for Brendan Ryan and Adam Warren. Brendan Ryan's released after the Cubs sign, uh, trade for him. Adam Warren is traded back to the Yankees in a deal later on in the season. So when the Yankees make a trade, they seem to get what they want, and they seem to minimize what it is that they're giving up in a trade. Even a Paxton trade, Justice Sheffield, top prospect, I agree. I think he's a player that you would certainly expect to be included in a trade like that. They didn't give up much else, though. And James Paxton's still young enough where he's in the prime of his career. It's a deal that looks like it's a win-win for the New York Yankees. And it's almost like Brian Cashman will not engage in a trade where there's even any doubts of the other team coming out ahead. That Sonny Gray trade, if you're a Yankees fan, you're going to throw out at me and say, that's one that certainly did not work out for the Yankees. But before I make that proclamation of that not being a good trade for the Yankees, I want to see what happens when Sonny Gray gets flipped this offseason to another team.
Because I bet you Brian Cashman is able to sell the fact that Sonny Gray just couldn't make it in New York. If you look at his track record and what he did for the Oakland Athletics, if you put him at the top of your rotation, I'm sure he's going to put up good numbers for you. He's shown up in a big game before. Look at a couple ACL, ALCS games against the Detroit Tigers and Justin Verlander. He showed up in those games. So it's not like he can't handle a spotlight. It's more of a matter that he can't handle in New York. And you can talk about Ed Whitson. You can talk about some of the other players that have come to the New York Yankees from other cities that have had prominence and success and just couldn't handle it in New York. And I bet you Brian Cashman is able to sell that to another general manager in Major League Baseball. And once he does that, I'm very interested to see exactly what the Yankees end up getting when they trade Sonny Gray. Maybe it's to the Padres, maybe it's to the Reds, maybe it's to a series, uh, any one of a number of teams that could use a middle of the rotation to top line pitcher. I would think Sonny Gray is the number one in San Diego, would go out there and make his 32 starts, probably pitch 200 innings, get himself 200 strikeouts, and give the Padres a good chance to win every time he goes out there and pitches, or the majority of the time that he goes out there and pitches. But the one thing that frustrates me is this thought that things should be handed to the Yankee fan. Now, they shouldn't just get Robinson Cano. they got to do, if they're going to make a trade with the Seattle Mariners, they got to do one of two things. That's take on Robinson Cano's entire contract, which you understand. You can talk about the minimum, the minimalization of what the return would be if you're taking on Robinson Cano's contract. And I get that, and I understand how that applies to sports today. But the other thing is, if you're asking the Mariners to pay off a lot of that contract the remaining five years on Robinson Cano's deal, you better stockpile the Seattle Mariners farm system and give up a lot more than any diehard Yankee fan would expect to give up. And maybe it includes somebody like an Andujar. Maybe it includes Andujar and Frazier. If you're talking about the full payment or a certain amount of Robinson Cano's contract being paid. And then the one thing that I tell you will just do nothing but piss me off. If this happens, if you see a flip of Robinson Cano for Jacoby Ellsbury, you're gonna hear me rant like I haven't ranted before. Jacoby Ellsbury has absolutely no value to anybody right now. And I don't care if you're rebuilding, I don't care if you're making a run for the playoffs, I don't care if you're a meddling team in the middle when it comes to competition and the thoughts of next season. If you're, not, if you're not competing, if you are competing, whatever it is, there's no use for you to be able to be sold on Jacoby Ellsbury having any freaking value to you. If he had any value, he'd still be on the Yankees. And I know he's contractually obligated to play for the New York Yankees. You talked about his injury last year and missing the whole season. How much of it was he, the fact that he was really hurt? How much of it was the fact that the Yankees just did not want to put him into a major league game? So anybody that could say, hey, Jacoby Ellsbury going anywhere in a trade from the New York Yankees with that other team taking on the rest of Ellsbury's contract is completely asinine. But the one thing you could come back at and say, hey, if you include Ellsbury going to Seattle in a deal for Robinson Cano, maybe it can work. But once again, there's only one way that this will work. Robinson Cano's contract, what he's getting paid by the Seattle Mariners over the next five years, becomes the responsibility of the New York Yankees. That's it. There's no Mariners paying anything off of it. 
If you're sending Ellsbury and his contract to Seattle and all of a sudden the Yankees don't have to worry about paying him anymore, okay. But in exchange for that, you're taking on Cano and his contract. And you'll probably get at least two or three solid seasons with him maybe being the everyday second baseman, maybe him working himself into the first base DH mix. I'm sure there's a way that you can find a ton of at-bats for Robinson Cano even when Didi Gregorius comes back. The Yankees would be better with him. But it's time that they start acting like the Yankees and fans and the media stop acting like they're the personal accountants and the financial planners for the New York Yankees. This is a team that could afford to take on Robinson Cano's contract. I understand that there was a point where they were not willing to do it, but it's moved on to a point where if there's a match between Seattle and the Yankees for Cano, the Yankees are going to have to understand it's either take on Cano's contract or go look somewhere else. And the Mariners, even if they're going through a deep rebuild, could probably benefit from having Robinson Cano around on this team over the next couple of years. And trading Jerry, which you call Jerry Depoto, uh, kind of a, a reference to the old trader Jack McKeon, back when he was with the San Diego Padres, just interested in flipping players for players. Jerry is gonna find a taker for Robinson Cano. And it's time that Jerry Depoto mans up and says, listen, if I'm going to trade Robinson Cano, it's going to be his contract too. Just a reminder that Castrol provides maximum protection against viscosity and thermal breakdown. So I was looking at some silly things that get thrown up to the front of sports feeds. And if you look at different type of websites, they want to draw you in, say, fight, fight. And you see it all the time on the internet. People sharing stupid videos of, you know, two hags friggin' slugging it out at Walmart. Like, like they couldn't look any trashier by that. But you see fights in sports. And a lot of times it happens for useless reasons. And there's, there are, are legitimate reasons if you ask individual players when it comes down to it. This person said that to me. This person taunted me. This person said this about my mother. Whatever. And maybe it's a rivalry. Two teams don't like each other. That boils over. And they end up, you know, throwing punches. So I'm going to point to two specific instances this past weekend when we can talk about useless fighting. And we'll start out by talking about the Buffalo Bills and the Jacksonville Jaguars, two teams that came into the game at 3-7. and seven. Obviously, if you're playing for the Jacksonville Jaguars, you could not stress any more the disappointment of a long season, the expectations that lived up when you started out the season, which you won your first two or three games. Now, it's completely falling apart. You got Blake Bortles being benched again in Jacksonville, a team that was expected to make a run for the AFC Championship, almost beat the New England Patriots last year. And now it's a team going nowhere. Now it's a team with a little less than half a season to play and nothing to play for. So I'd understand how Tension could boil over in a situation like that. But I'll tell you, when you look at Leonard Fournette and you look at the defensive lineman for Buffalo, Lawson, just really for no reason, just throwing haymakers on each other, it just looks bad. It looks like this is what losing teams do. And when you want to try to separate yourself in a world of sports as a winning franchise, you don't do stuff like that. And it's not a matter of, listen, there are some instances where, hey, if somebody attacks you, you defend yourself, of course. If somebody takes a shot at the head of your quarterback over the course of a football game, you defend yourself. 
But when you got two losing teams, two teams in Jacksonville and Buffalo that were both playoff teams last year, that have both been extreme disappointments this year, it's it's almost like taking a couple people who got nothing going on in their lives and just watching them go out there and swing and throw punches in school. It's like when you set up those two kids that aren't popular against each other to fight because they know that they would love to have some popularity in their life. And they're so down on themselves. They so know that uh, they're not going to get the attention that the other students get in school. And when they're pinned against each other to fight to try to prove something, that's what it looks like. And when those people are fighting, thinking that they're gaining a little bit of popularity, when they're gaining a little bit of attention from the people that haven't shown them any attention over a series of years, those other people are sitting there laughing at them. And when I was watching Fournette and Lawson throw punches for two, three, and seven teams that were going nowhere, the outside and the general public, instead of giving them the attention they deserve, should have been laughing. It was an absolute joke. It was an embarrassment to both of those teams and both of those players to act the way that they did. They looked like losers. And that's what losers do. They have meaningless fights with each other when the general public, instead of rooting them on, is sitting there laughing at them. So you also have the situation that happens between Texas A&M and LSU. And former NFL running back Kevin Falk, who's working for LSU in the athletic department, ends up being involved in a fight with Jimbo Fisher, what, his nephew? The guy's name's Cole. Once again, a situation where I don't, I don't know where some of this would get started, but obviously in a day in the media age that we live in right now, it's going to draw a lot of attention and people are going to be gravitated towards it. But it certainly took away of what was a great game. 74, 72, seven overtimes. If you watched college football this weekend, that might have been the most exciting game to watch. I mean, Ohio State-Michigan was interesting because of Ohio State you know, doing what they did to Michigan. But it, after, after halftime, it wasn't really a game. In the third quarter, it wasn't really a game. This was a game between A&M and LSU that goes back and forth, back and forth, and was actually exciting to watch if you had the opportunity to see it. So I don't know what leads to these type of things, but you know there's always a chance that something could happen when the teams come to the center of the field after the game. If there's any tension involved, and I'm sure there's a little bit of a tension, uh, a little bit of tension it, you know, involved when teams are going back and forth and really either team could have won said game. So, I don't know what Cole Fisher is doing. Is he trying to stand up for you know his, his uncle? Make himself look good? Say, hey, look at me. I'm going to go take a swing at somebody hitting a pacemaker. I don't know. But the bottom line is, we talk about useless fighting in sports. There's only one way to combat it. It's not to talk about it like I'm talking about it. It's not to give it the attention that, obviously, the people that are involved in it are seeking. You got Leonard Fournette, and then you got the the Buffalo player going back and forth throwing haymakers. I remember uh, Cortland Finnegan, you know, swinging at uh, Andre Johnson of Houston years ago to the Titans uh, Texans. It it screams out, "Hey, I need some attention. Look at me. I want to be noticed." And the only way to combat that is to get to a point where you say, "Hey, I'm not going to give it the attention it deserves." This is the famous Budweiser beer. We know of no brand produced by any other brewer that costs so much 
to brew and age. Our exclusive Beachwood Aging produces a taste, a smoothness, and drinkability you'll find in no beer at any cost. So everybody that's tuned into the show today, I do want to thank you. And I thank everybody who is a loyal listener of the program. And I certainly appreciate everybody coming aboard, listening to the show on iTunes and Google Play, and watching the show on YouTube. Um, we're getting a spark in numbers, and it's, it's good to see that the show is being broadcast in front of a larger audience. An audience who I say, no matter what your views are, no matter whether you agree with me, disagree with me, like me, hate me, don't want me to be on the air whatsoever, or love me, I appreciate that you're there. So this is the part of the show that we get off of sports for a quick second, and it's going to be short today. I told you the program was going to be a quick filibuster, was going to be brief, and it is. So we've all been involved in this, and I know we live in a politically correct day and age that we live in right now. It's set up to a point where anybody says anything that's inappropriate, it's an indictment of them as a person. But we tend to forget that every single one of us, regardless of what our difference is, regardless of who we are, is guilty of making an inappropriate comment at some point. Now, sometimes it's not directed at somebody. Sometimes it's not in the presence of somebody. A lot of times it'll happen when you're amongst people that you're comfortable with, whether it's family whether it's friends, whether it's coworkers, whether it's acquaintances, usually people that you trust and are willing to kind of joke around and say something silly and maybe a little joke and maybe something that you say, hey, you know, it was inappropriate, but it was funny. And, and all these things seem to kind of go under the rug. And for the most part, it does. But 2018, somebody overhears an inappropriate comment. A comment that they weren't supposed to hear. A comment that's not directed at them whatsoever. And all of a sudden it becomes a big deal. And anybody that is a generation old, in other words, and anybody that is not a millennial that was born on technology with computers and with everything at the touch of your fingers with a smartphone, understands that this is stuff that has gone on for years upon years. It gets magnified now because all you got to do is flash a quick audio or flash a quick video and you can catch somebody saying something inappropriate. And if that's your goal, if that's what you're living your life to try to do to bring somebody else down, then all you can do is walk around with your phone every day and just videotape conversations. You're going to catch people saying things that are inappropriate. And when they're asked about it, in some cases, they may not even acknowledge what it is that they say. They may not even remember what it is that they said. Because it, the malice was not behind it. And I think there should be a separation when it comes to inappropriate comments between somebody that has malice or hatred behind what it is that they're saying. Because there should be no toleration for that. That being said, when somebody is saying something in jest amongst their friends. It should not be treated as if it's completely inappropriate. And understand that because everybody is guilty of that. So a quick recap of the show today. We started out by talking about Michigan, Ohio State. A good game if you're an Ohio State fan. Surprised that Michigan was not able to make the adjustments. Um, great game plan by Urban Meyer in Ohio State. You got uh, Baker Mayfield, Hugh Jackson, 
Baker Mayfield decides in a disrespectful way that he's not going to shake hands with his former coach at the end of the game. No reason for that. And then the other issue I have is the fact that people are trying to compare Hugh Jackson getting fired, taking another job, going to the Cincinnati Bengals, and saying it was him betraying the Browns. The Browns, even though Hugh Jackson deserved it, the Browns betrayed him. They terminated his contract. He has the right to do whatever it is he wants, work for whoever it is that he wants, once the Browns decided they didn't want him around anymore. Robinson Cano, we know he's got a five, five years left on his contract, a lot of money left and owed to him. It's not going to be as simple as Robinson Cano being handed over to a team and the Mariners assuming a whole lot of his salary. The thought of a Robinson Cano for J Jacoby Ellsbury trade, if you're a diehard Yankee fan and you can't wait to see that happen, would happen under one of two circumstances. Either it's contract for contract, the Yankees take on the rest of what Robinson Cano is owed in exchange for the rest of what Jacoby Ellsbury is owed. And I know Cano is owed more money, but Cano is also the better and more valuable player. Or if the Mariners are taking on a lot of his contract, then the Mariners better be getting the fruits of the Yankees' farm system. There better be a package that starts with Miguel Andujar and Clint Frazier and some of the top players in the New York Yankees farm system, or else there's no deal. It's just a dream discussion as we hit hot stove in Major League Baseball. Finally, useless fighting. And I always compare useless fighting that we see in professional sports. I remember JoJo English going and attacking Derek Harper in a, in a Knicks-Bulls playoff game. It was almost like, hey, nobody knows who JoJo English is. If I go and I get into this fight, people will know who I am. And it's almost like the unpopular kids in middle school and high school that are pinned against each other and ready for a fight because they want some attention. And the people that they think they're getting the attention from are really laughing at them. And that's what I was doing when I was watching Buffalo Jacksonville. That's what I was doing when I was watching the aftermath of Texas A&M LSU. I was laughing at the unpopular people. Finally, inappropriate comments. I think we should be more conscious of them and who hears them. But understand that just about everybody is guilty of making an inappropriate comment at some point. You know, we live in a day and age where everything's microphoned and everything's magnified. We don't, you know, a lot of times things that are said are not an indictment of the people that we are. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Just a little recap of some of the comments for today. Uh, we got Liam saying hi from the UK. Um, T-R-O-U-B-B-I-B saying hi from the UK. We got Car005 saying hello, Tramp. So do want to acknowledge all your contributions to the show today. Bill is still in Jackson, or is, I guess, is implying that I'm still in Jackson. I'm actually in Tom's River now, but it's all good. Jackson Pride, Jackson Jaguars, appreciate you tuning in to the show. So, uh, as always, do want to thank everybody for tuning in. God bless you, and as always, I'll see you on the other side.